So Money episode 550, Alana Levine, actor and podcast host of Little Known Facts. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Karabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. Welcome to So Money, everyone. Happy March 22nd. Maybe you knew this about me, maybe not, but I was a total theater junkie in high school and college. I acted, I directed, I minored in theater. I think that if I was more risk-taking, I would have pursued acting as a career. But then I just saw La La Land and I saw how excruciating the audition process can be for some women in Hollywood. And I'm I'm positive I would not have lasted long. I would have been back on a plane to the East Coast. I mean, part of me always wonders what if, but uh, we can live vicariously through people like Ilana Levine, who is our guest today, a lovely actor who's appeared in multiple films, plays, and TV shows. And she's the host of a fantastic new podcast called Little Known Facts. And on this show, she interviews fellow performers about their lives, their careers, and of course, all the juicy things that you can't just Google about them. You're not going to find the these details on IMDb. You have to listen to her show. Like, for example, I just finished listening to the episode with Laura Linney, learned that she was raised by a single mom in New York, spent her days after school as a latchkey kid like I did. Matthew Broderick, another example, was supposed to star in a breakout role when he was just starting out with Sally Field, but then the director of the film passed away and the project never happened. And did he give up? No, he did not. So with Alana, we talk about the art of acting, podcasting, and of course money. Here's Alana Levine. Alana Levine, welcome to So Money, fellow podcaster. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. I love your show. Likewise, I was uh, listening to your interview with Laura Linney, who uh, many people may or may not know um, listening to the show as I've uh, talked a lot about my personal life on the show. She is a uh, local mom here. She, Her son and my son are in the same school. And um, she is just as delightful and charming in person as you hope someone that you love would be that you see on the, the big screen. And um, you have her on the show as well as a number of wonderful performers. You yourself are an actress and uh, what I love about your show is that you really take the conversation to places we would never go in other places with these people. You know, we get to learn the little things, right? Um, well, Laura, you know, the thing that's been great about the show is I know Laura because she and I did our, we were each in our first play in New York City together. So that's how long the relationship has uh, has been going on for. And so I've really been lucky to kind of have a a front row seat to watching this actress who I thought was a magnificent talent straight out of college to someone, you know, who's a household name at this point. And to your point, I'm not just saying this, and I'm sure you've seen it at, you know, drop off and pick up at, at your, at your nursery. (laughs) She's the most down to earth, approachable, kind, warm person. And 
she's such a chameleon because she probably just looks like a Brooklyn mom at drop off. And then on <laughs> she just transforms into, you know, whether she's playing, you know, John Adams wife or a very modern, you know, sex pot, she can just do everything. She's a really extraordinary talent and one of the nicest humans on the planet. And I'm so glad that you know her too. And, and your gift is that you brought all of that to life during that interview. I mean, you really make the, you make a cozy place for your guests on Little Known Facts, your, your new podcast. Tell us how you transitioned to becoming a podcast host. How, how did that materialize? You know, I would say that in some ways it's, um, it's such an unlikely thing because I had no uh, personal contacts to the world of broadcasting. But um, I have always loved radio so much. So when I look at the narrative now, it makes perfect sense to me that I would become a host just because as a kid, we drove around a lot visiting our grandparents and my father would always have the radio on, mostly listening for traffic, but then it would just stay on and you'd hear news stories and the idea of like a voice coming out of a box, not connected to a body or face, just words was a very comforting thing for me as a child. So I'm excited that I'm a part of that same kind of storytelling now. But um, I was a person who was on Broadway and doing television and film. And around the time I had my kids, I was mostly doing theater here in New York. And it suddenly became clear to me that it wasn't the best work schedule for having young children because nighttime when I would be on stage is bedtime and bath time and dinner time. And I was missing out on all of that really crucial family coming together. So I did have it in my mind somehow that I wanted to transition for a little while into something that A, could happen during the day consistently, and maybe that I could have more control of. And as an actress, I've also done a lot of other things. I've directed and I've produced. But anytime you're you're working in film, which is where I was acting and producing, um, the hours are just insane. And it it just wasn't conducive. So recently, a friend of mine quite literally absorbed a podcast company into his studios. It's called Pro Media New York City, and they are a film production facility. And we were talking and he's like, you know, I feel like you'd be really great at hosting a podcast. Do you want to try it? And um, it was a moment in time where I decided I was going to say yes to everything that wasn't dangerous or put anyone I loved at risk. (laughs) So I said yes. And sort of like the way they tell writers, you know, beginning writers start with what you know. I thought, okay, I've just been given this opportunity to have headphones and microphone and really fantastic recording quality. What do I know? And who do I know to come in? So that's how it started. I thought, well, what I know is acting. I've been doing it for over 20 years. Who I know are actors and artists who loves me enough to come in and be a guinea pig as I try this. And the first person who came in was John Slattery of Mad Men fame, among others. And we were off to the races. And and at this point, I've done a tremendous amount of, um, of interviews. And it turns out that my friend who said, hey, I think you'd be good at this, as shy as I am about admitting that I'm good at something, um, the the interviews have been turning out remarkably well and the feedback and response to the show has been amazing. So that's a long answer uh, to your question, but that's kind of how it began. And 
You were smart to start with something that you know and are familiar with and you have easy access to, easier access to um, booking these phenomenal guests. But yet the show is called Little Known Facts and most of the conversation is about the lesser, the hidden gems, uh, the the life backstories of your guests, how they became performers, the struggles. And so as their friend and as their colleagues in some cases and as an interviewer, what's been some of the most incredible things that you have discovered about your guests? Is there a theme, an unknown, a, l- a lesser known or little known fact that's actually turned into quite a bit of a, a theme that has strung together these guests of yours? I think so. You know, uh, uh, many thoughts are racing through my mind as you ask me that question. And it's such a good question. But I think the thing that translates universally, regardless of whether you're pursuing a career in the arts or any kind of business that you dream about and have a passion for, I think it's really easy for us to understand how people deal with exciting triumphs in whatever venture they are setting out on. But how you handle the nose and the rejections and that deep vulnerability, especially when you're a performer. So the no is not to your new vacuum that you're selling. In the moment, the no is you. We actually don't want you. Um, and I would say thematically in every single episode, the way each of my guests, and I think part of why they are so successful, is they have all, and in different ways, but they have all managed to negotiate the no with grace. And for me, that has been one of the most inspiring things about being in a room with these people. Um, and the other thing that I've noticed, and I'm not just saying this to, to sound Pollyanna or, or toot the horn of my guests, to a person, part of why I think they've been so successful is not are they born with the gift of talent and then they've worked really hard to hone their craft. I think it's Malcolm Gladwell. Was he the one who said, you know, it takes like 10,000 hours mm-hmm. to become an expert? They are truly to a person, the kindest people I know. And I really believe, and it's not that not nice people don't do really well too. We have plenty of stories of people who rise to the top uh, and haven't treated everyone along the way with generosity. But I would say that all of my guests, and in a way, the way I cherry pick them is not only do I think they're remarkably talented and inspiring, are they people that I actually want to spend time with because their hearts match their talent. And to a person, they are. And the little known fact about each of them is I think all of them take none of this for granted and have continued to be as generous now as they were when they first started out. So that's been a really kind of beautiful thing to string through the process of doing these interviews. I remember in your conversation with Laura Linney, she talked about a few times being an understudy on Broadway. And I guess I, I didn't know this, but maybe for elite character, there might be a, a few understudies and she was there while other understudies might have checked out or wouldn't really engage during every well, performance. The other, the other understudies that she's referring to in the play with six degrees of separation, yes. Stocker Channing. Uh, which is actually coming back to Broadway with oh, Alice wow. Janney and John Benjamin Hickey, who are Alice and Janney of the show Mom and West Wing, who's an old friend of mine and who's coming up on the podcast very soon. And John Benjamin Hickey, who won the Tony for, um, uh, I guess, the 2014 Tony Award for Best Actor. Um, 
you know, there, the other understudies she's referring to were understudies for not the same part as her. So okay. The cast that makes sense. Study. Yeah. But still, she said she just couldn't get enough of being backstage. She would watch the show every night. And she, uh, did she ever get the chance to fill in? I don't think she ever um, went on. I mean, I, I don't, I don't think she went on. I don't recall that she did, but I think, um, I think always seeing yourself as a student in life mm-hmm is another key to success. I think the minute you think you know everything and stop being in awe of others, you're you're really shooting yourself in the foot. I mean, I imagine that would be true no matter what career path you're on. Well, yeah. I mean, I think staying curious is... Tony Robbins said that on my podcast. He was our first guest. And the, I think if I remember nothing, it's... I do remember that he said one of the keys to life and one of the keys to success in life is always staying curious, asking the why, the how, uh, and no question is is a silly question. And I think it was one of your guests. I can't remember his name. Forgive me, but I believe uh, his name might have been Mike, and he runs the Upright Citizen Brigade in yes. L.A. Mike is- Still. I'd still your old college friend, you know, something he said that's really important for aspiring artists is you have to make your own work. It may not pay you. It may not be the thing that, you know, changes your bank account, but to to not wait around for people to give you permission to do what you love to do, but to make sure that you find ways. You know, I often teach a class um at different universities, I'm often asked to come in and talk about, you know, they'll create a class now, which they didn't have when I was going to college uh, and studying acting, the business of being an artist, which is kind of a new part of university curriculums and drama programs, because it's so important to figure out not just how to hone your craft to be the best, most ready actor when the opportunity comes, but how to be entrepreneurial in the way you pursue your art. And so much of, you know, how other businesses work, which is networking um, and being brave enough to network, it's really an important part of being an actor, too. And I often say to people, you know, if you have younger people listening or older people who are career changing in this moment, the people in the room that you're sitting with in your class, like, look around. This is the beginning of your community. It's all about community and building a community. And you don't know who's in the room with you right now. Like you're taking this acting class, but you might really have this dream of being, you're taking the acting class because you want to be a singer, but you want to have stage presence. And the person next to you, their dad might be like a huge record producer. Like just talk to people. You never know where the connection is going to happen. And it's really everywhere all the time. And I think Actors and performers are so shy about self-promoting. It feels so um, uncomfortable and not what an artist should do. There's no suffering in that. Um, And I think the more, you know, I'm skipping around a little bit, but I think the more we get comfortable with talking about what we love to do the same way everyone else does in every other field on the planet, um, the more we, we will grow financially. Well, just how you explained how your podcast began. You were talking about this aspiration with a friend at a po- at a party. Yeah. And similar to my situation, I was talking to a friend about my podcast and how I wanted to get sponsors. And she's like, called me up one day and said, you'll never believe it. I have a friend who's consulting with this company called AdLarge and <clears throat> they are looking for female financial podcasters to represent them to get them some ad dollars. <laughs> okay. Um is this something that you, you know, this 
the this philosophy that you have to kind of look at your career as an artist as a business is this something that you knew from the get go? Talk a little bit about your own personal journey in the world of performing arts and how you navigated it, and how would you characterize it? Well, it's so funny that you say that. I I I think so much about how this de- that was not the model for me when I was coming up. The model for me was. Um, the theater was the place that I wanted to work and I never expected, uh, to get paid uh, a living wage by working in the theater. So it was, what can I do to support my theater hobby? Like my theater habit, the idea that it would be a, a high paying career just never occurred to me. You know, actors until very recently in history, like you would see these signs, like, actors sleep in the barn. Like it was not a reputable, uh, you know, career the way now people strive for it. it. It's changed remarkably. And that's kind of happened, you know, in the last 50 years, uh, you know, not 50 years, the last century, right, where it's really changed. So I would say that I started out, I did go to, you know, a BFA acting program. I very quickly was involved in a theater company called Naked Angels in New York City that from that company have come many, many well-known actors that your listeners will have heard of, from Rob Morrow to Gina Gershon to Marissa Tomei to Sarah Jessica Parker, Matthew Broderick, writers like Kenny Lonergan, whose film Manchester by the Sea has, you know, kind of made a big splash this year. A little bit. A little bit. So so um, we all were committed to doing theater in New York, and we all would go off and do other projects that we saw as money-making projects. Like I would go to LA and do what's called pilot season, where you would audition for the new TV shows. If I was lucky enough to get one, um, I would take that money, which would be a windfall for me. And it makes me think of, you know, other people I listen to on your show. When that was the beginning of this unbelievable, um, mind-blowing reality that I could sign a contract that had a huge dollar amount on it. Because when you do a TV show, even though at the moment they're just promising you the one episode, the pilot episode, you sign a contract that shows you what you will make for seven years. And it's a pretty mind-blowing experience to see that on paper. And you also have to like calm your body down. I would almost sign it with one hand over my eye so it didn't add to my nerves knowing that when (laughs) I walk in this room, it's not just walking into a room to buy a lottery ticket. It's walking into a room knowing that if you hit it out of the park, you absolutely are guaranteed a winning lottery number. It's a very strange thing psychologically. But that... um, that was what I would do. I would go and kind of get the dirty money that the TV was, right? Like, that's bad. That's not art. And then run home to do my plays. And it took me a long time to admit out loud that actually, I loved doing television. I loved the um, the way in which you had to work super quickly and be very um, uh, spontaneous. And, and there was a whole art to that. And now that's changed significantly. The lines are are completely blurred now between television, film, and theater. There's not one like high art. There's not highbrow and lowbrow anymore. But when I was starting out, there was a real, um, I don't know, there was a real attitude like television was 
was not beneath uh, me. Your heart. Yes, yes. Now I'm like, please, what? Who do I? Yeah, and now it's you know, TV has broadened to. I was just reading a headline this morning that Apple wants to also get into the Netflix game and yep. start making original programming and so many successful shows through those um, streaming channels. So in some ways, TV is where the opportunities are. And the writing in TV now is coming. Mm-hmm. So it started in my in my time that it started to, part of what made it so amazing is it was playwrights being high. It's like old Hollywood. They would take playwrights and they would sort of take them out to Hollywood to write these, you know, Samuel Goldwyn and, you know, all of those kind of Hollywood studio heads in the 50s and 60s were taking playwrights from the New York theater and they began writing screenplays. And, you know, Aaron Sorkin was a playwright before he started writing The West Wing. I mean, there was a real part of what's made the writing for television so magnificent. It's it's based on, you know, playwrights at the center of the writing of it. So that's helped it too. There's a parallel too, I think, in my industry with journalism. You know, there's a lot of respect for print reporters and people who work for the the marquee newspapers like the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal and um, who write for the Atlantic. And and I think when I was in school, the, those of us who wanted to pursue broadcast were kind of looked upon. I think it wasn't it wasn't blatant, but you know, there was this undercurrent that like, we weren't as ambitious or we had the wrong kind of ambition that we wanted to just be on TV to be on TV right. and we were after the fame. Ego. Right. Ego driven. Ego driven. Right. A true scrappy reporter, you know. But truthfully, these days, whether you're a performer, a journalist, you have to have a lot of different talents. You have to be able to tell your story in as many mediums as possible if you want to continue to thrive in, in this ever evolving media landscape. And yep. so it would behoove the you know newspaper writers to learn how to maybe put on a, uh, some foundation and get on TV and tell their story. And also at the same time, um, for TV journalists to be able to write a great 3,000-word article. Right. Um, well, let's talk a little bit about money. <laughs> how often does money come up on your show, by the way? I'm sure it does all the time. Well, I think it comes up in terms of most of the the actors, unless, you know, I don't think I've had that many trust fund babies on my show. Um, most of them live very differently now than they did when they started out. So money comes up, even if we don't talk about it specifically, how much did you make, you know, to do the Americans, you know, when I had Noah Emmerich on, I think the difference between living in the fifth floor walk up in Greenwich Village and then no longer living in a five floor walk up in Greenwich Village is is very much a part of the story of all of these people who started out. You know, John Slattery talks a lot about when he first started, he was living in Gravesend, Brooklyn, you know, in an apartment where the um the train, the subway it was like a Woody Allen movie. Like he could see the the train going right by his window and the whole apartment would shake every time the subway went by. And, you know, he's not living in that apartment anymore. Now it's, it's a memory that was really, um, a huge, a huge part of what an artist's story in the beginning is, is struggle, 
right? And all of those mm-hmm. things, you know, Dan Bukatinsky, who's on um, the new 24 show uh, on Fox, talked about his first apartment was like that Laverne and Shirley Styles apartment, like on the, gar- the, the basement <laughs> apartment where you would just see people's feet walking by. And he talks about pacing around that studio apartment below the ground, like a caged animal, like plotting and planning. How am I going to go from someone in an acting class to someone acting in front of people and getting paid for it. Um, you know, Cynthia Nixon, who grew up an only child with a single mom in New York City, um, remains an incredibly frugal, very generous, but with herself, a frugal by nature person because she grew up in a frugal by nature household um, or, or frugal out of necessity household. And so what's been really interesting is you watch celebrities explode, you know, in their careers is how do those people handle this sudden um, excitement and burden of wealth? And we see people go off the rails and we find out, you know, we'll see people on some reality show like The Apprentice or, you know, and they're there because you're like, oh, my God, they have no more money. That's what they're right. doing. Or they're on Dancing with the Stars because they yeah. have no more money. Right. Well, I they mean, haven't acted since TGIF on ABC, you know, like yeah. Urkel. That's um, <laughs> so much. Or, you know, maybe they're going, you know what, I'm 50 and this is a remarkable opportunity. And this is where you talk sure. about women in the industry to show that I still can look and be amazing, even though Hollywood has decided to put me out to pasture. So that's part of it, too. But Hey, hey listen, I would love to be on Dancing with the Stars. I don't think I'm cool. <laughs> enough. I don't think I'm like, I'm not even there yet. So that, what does that say yeah. about me? Exactly. Well, it, it's, it's about a goal. This is now your goal. It, to get it is a goal. I think it's, it would be a great way. I need to lose this baby weight. And right. It, well, that's a great way to do it. <laughs> there you go. How about in your own personal life? You know, I ask my guests often about their own financial backgrounds, which as you just explained, it sounds like a lot of these artists take with, take the good and the bad and they and it creates their their financial roadmap as adults. And so as you were growing up, where did you grow up, by the way? I grew up in New Jersey and, uh, and just over the George Washington Bridge. So New York City was always, you know, uh, coming to New York was not like, ooh, what's New York like, right? I mean, I came to New York all the time. My father's office was in New York. But I feel like, you know, my story and who I am today and what I hear myself saying to my kids is such a reenactment of how I grew up, which is I had two parents who grew up in Brooklyn uh, who were real products of the Depression. And and my 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 parents really worked hard to get out of an urban environment to get us to New Jersey. That was the American dream for them. And I feel like over the years, my father uh, and my mom together really built something. And considering how they grew up, it was never not remarkable to them that not only did they have enough money to get by, they had savings. And I remember we moved from one house to another house around the corner. And the difference between the neighborhoods, the size of the house were, were quite noticeable. And so I can pinpoint like the moment in time where I knew things had changed for my family. Um, but my parents were because of how they grew up, no matter how well they did their lifestyle for their personal lifestyle 
never changed. What did change is how much they continue to give away. So rather than living larger or living more extravagantly, what did change is how much more they were able to give to those in need, whether it was people they knew or charities that they believed in. And so I remember my dad would always comment about how much a cup of coffee cost. You know, we'd be at a really nice restaurant celebrating someone's birthday and he couldn't help himself. He'd say out loud, like, four fifty for a cup of coffee. Like, that's crazy. <laughs> and I would be like, Dad, like all embarrassed. Like, what if somebody heard? And he's like, no, my love, it's not that I can't afford. I'm very proud. I can really, I could pay $100 for this cup of coffee. For him, it was about value. Is this cup of coffee worth four fifty? as opposed to the guy with the cart outside on Broadway and 40th Street who's selling a cup of coffee for a dollar. Like what makes this cup of coffee three or four times more worth it in value? And that, you know, that has really stayed with me in in how I talk to my kids about things. There will be times where, you know, if we all get to go out to lunch and then that night we're home and my kids are like, can we order in sushi? And I'll say, you know what, you guys, like we got to go out for Thai this afternoon. It seems a little overindulgent to me that we order in sushi tonight. And they're like, are we poor? Is everything okay? And I'm just explaining to them, it's, it's no, we're, we're not. Nothing's changed since two o'clock this afternoon significantly, but it's about the value and how I want to spend my money and how I want them to think about, do I have what I need every once in a while? Is there something special I want, but what do I need? And that's been a really big lesson in terms of, you know, my dad, I remember a typical Bob and Helen story. That's my parents' name. My father always, if they traveled and went to a casino, he'd start with $100. And once the $100 was gone, the night was over. But he would only start with $100. And one night they came back to the room so excited and they had like a big win. And I was like, oh my God, what did you do? And they were like, we went to the bar in the old San Juan Hotel. And we told our friend Rip behind the bar that we just won a windfall. And so we ordered one pina colada with two straws. Like yeah. that's there, like that, you that's know, your parents. Yeah, they're adorable, but they really, really um, kept their feet very close to the ground. And that's what they taught us. Once well, as, you- I'm, as I'm listening to you, I think the other really fantastic takeaway, you know, something to maybe bring into your own life as a parent is to not just say no or yes to your kids' financial requests, but to offer explanation. Right. You know, um, can we have this? No. Well, why, you know, and actually explain why. And I think when you told your kids, you know, we can't have sushi tonight because it's overindulgent. I mean, that's a great way to, you know, give meaning to your reasoning. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Text too. And listen, my kids live with two actors. I mean, they, you know, we're, we're, (laughs) we're gypsies and there have been, um, you know, our life is, is sort of a roller coaster. You know, my husband was on a TV show for, for a long time. And, and, um, you know, so he would get picked up for work when he was going to work on his TV show. There'd always be someone outside waiting to drive him. When we as a family go to the airport, we take the train to the plane, to the bus, you know, there's, there's all of these different lifestyles they're witnessing. And so I think for children of people in the entertainment industry, it can be even more confusing because the, the landscape changes so rapidly, uh, at 
from time to time or from day to day, they see our friends who have skyrocketed, you know, they're like taking us to islands for vacations. And then when we go away, we're depending on, you know, where we are. It's not a private island. Like there's just all these things that they're seeing. And I, and my biggest hope for them, and I've really had to think so much about my relationship to money when I had the great, um, invitation to come on your show and to really start thinking about it is I want them, you know, to just be comfortable with every scenario. And I think that comes from knowing who you are and just feeling confident who you are. You know, we live in New York and there are just so many different ways people are living. Um, you know, we have friends who have four kids in, in one bedroom and we have friends who have one child in a four story townhouse. Like there's just, they're seeing a lot of different kinds of stories. We're on the subway all the time. And my son is constantly, he wants me to give money to every single person who comes through the subway. And, you know, they always ask me like, why are you giving to that person and not to that person? And negotiating, um, you know, urban living, I imagine is different than suburban living. And my kids are seeing, you know, we're seeing homeless people daily and we're seeing people in town cars pulling up to the restaurant across the street from us. So it's just a lot to negotiate and navigate emotionally. Um, and we talk about it. We really do. We talk about everything. And I think giving is, you know, there are days where I just give until I have no more money left in my wallet to give. And there are days where certain stories don't ring true to me, you know, when someone's panhandling. Mm -hmm. So but then I think, oh, my God, it doesn't matter. They're panhandling. Things are not good. Like, maybe it's not as good a story, but, like, guess what? There's Those a reason. sneakers look too white. How could he possibly need my money? Yeah. Exactly. But, you know, to a kid, it is kind of interesting. Like, what – how do you know? And 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 also just making sure – I just want them to see the humanity in every story, right? Like, everyone has a story. Why – what happened? why are they asking? And sometimes people ask really aggressively and it can be a little scary. Um, and sometimes it's, you know, incredibly sad, but whatever the style of asking is really just remembering that the baseline is we're all humans and we all have to help each other. You're making me want to stay in New York a lot longer because I do think I hear you talking about your children are a little bit older, but I think that's a gift to be able to live your life exposed like that. You have to see how others live. You're not living in your tinted windowed SUV on your way to school and you don't get dropped off everywhere. You have to face everybody. And through that comes a lot of, I think, maturity and um, empathy. Yeah, absolutely. So then you talked earlier about how as two uh, actors, basically, you know, there's a lot of um, uncertainty sometimes in in your lives. Um, So how have you created financial certainty in your household? Oh, wait, did we? Did we? (laughs) That's presuming. Do we have financial certainty? Well, maybe I'm presuming. It's that with any person who is working in an industry that is um, changes so often, you know, you have to tell you all kidding aside, both, you know, my husband and I grew up differently. And I think, you know, as any, if you have couples on your show at some point, I think there's no mystery to why money can often be the biggest stress point between two people. Um, and so I think for us, there's been a lot of learning about how we want to deal with money, how we talk about money, 
But one thing that we both share in common is we really don't spend more money than we have. And so we're, we're just realists about it. When we are in a situation where we are making what is a lot of money for us, we save as much as we can because, you know, I used the word gypsy before. That might be a slight exaggeration. Maybe that's where I got the idea of like. Yes, but we don't know when the next job is going to be. We do not have financial security. I mean, you know, Dominic was on a show for for seven years. That's a remarkable thing to be on a television series for seven years. But, you know, until we have five television shows that are on the air for seven years, we're never going to believe like we're those people. So we definitely save. And, you know, something my my father taught me, and I don't know if it's right or not, but I've sort of mimicked it is we do and, you know, we invest like we own our apartment and we invest in the stock market, but we never look at investments as things we are going to use right away. It is always money that we are putting away and expect to leave it there for a long time. And, you know, uh, part of that came out of a, one of the first, I've had some exciting money wins, but one of the biggest losses I had is when Sirius Radio first came on the stock market, um, Howard Stern, it was, it was so newsworthy because Howard Stern was going to be a part of it. And I had, uh, I had just done a television series myself and I was meeting with a business manager who had laid out sort of a portfolio of stock ideas for me. And I was like, well, I have one because I'd been hearing all about like, you know, speaking of radio and how I've ended up coming back to radio. But I always thought Howard Stern was kind of an, a real original in terms of how he did radio and that he was going to be on Sirius. Anyway, I bought it and the stock tanked pretty quickly and it stayed low for a really long time. And I sold and lost almost everything from my initial investment. And had I just let it linger for for many more years and not worried about it, because I didn't even need that money at the time, I just got nervous, um, it would have been fine. So I think we really look at, you know, certain investments as being a part of our future lives and our children's future lives. When we make money, um, we always make sure to put it into our children's college and education accounts so that no matter what happens, that's growing for them. Um, but really, we live within our means. And that has kept things stable for us. That's great. Yes. Looking at investments as just long-term investments, whether it's real estate, art, stocks, I think yeah. that's the best approach too. Yeah. So we have a little bit of time left and maybe not any time left because (laughs) I haven't looked at my clock in a while, but I want to wrap here with doing some fill in the blanks. Okay. Really fun zingers. um, Starting with, if I won the lottery tomorrow, let's say you won a hundred million bucks. The first thing I would do is... You know, I would support organizations that are devoted to helping end world hunger. There's like eight. I mean, this is just a passion of mine. And this is a separate conversation. I think there are close to 800 million people in the world suffering from hunger. So any organization or person who's devoted to solving that, I would give as much as I could to work on that problem. I love that. Starting with kids, it breaks my heart. To know yeah. that kids go to school hungry and kids go days without really getting a nutritious meal. I mean, that's just, and especially when you're, when you're it's growing. 
Yeah. I mean, in New York City, there's an organization that that we're, you know, really devoted to called the Food Bank of New York. That's one place. And then Feed the Hungry nationally, but internationally, it's just the numbers are staggering. So that's not to say that, you know, I wouldn't also like to have, you know, a slightly larger apartment. We're living in in close quarters, which is charming, (laughs) but there are moments where it's less than charming. But in terms of big picture, it would just bring me such joy to be able to impact um, that epidemic. One thing I spend on that makes my life easier or better is? I order in. I order in. I'm not a great cook. And even if I were, by the time I went to the store and bought all the ingredients and got home and put them together, I would have already, if I ordered in, it's New York City from like food, I could get food either, you know, Vietnamese, Thai, Burmese, sushi, Chinese, Middle Eastern in six minutes. And it's delicious. <laughs> it is. You know, I, I, Am you and and but but I'm ch- I'm trying to change things up a little bit. Um, I don't know if it's just because I'm nesting right now with being yeah. eight months pregnant. But I started to subscribe to these companies that send you a box of ingredients. Yeah, with the menus. I did that. I did that. I won't mention the name because there's a bunch of them and they're all delicious. But by day four, I was like, okay, I have seven turnips left in my thing, and they were. It's fantastic. They are. They can be labor intensive because they give you so many beautiful ingredients. I mean, it's like opening up a box of art supplies. It's (laughs) beautiful. And then it's paint by numbers. Right. For me. And it's amazing. And I do have to say cooking for me is um, as a familial, uh, as a familial thing, you know, when we all do it together, it's heaven. I mean, just the idea. But the truth is, when I let my kids cook, like the amount of time I'm cleaning my kitchen because of the fun they got to have, it's sort of it's a it's a disaster. So basically, um, it is not. I'm in awe of people who are great cooks. I'm in awe of people who do it every night. Um, but I really that's my guilty pleasure, and it really does give me more time. To, we have limited time at night between homework and how much everybody has going on. When I'm by myself in the kitchen making dinner happen, I'm not with them. So ordering in allows me more time that is just really focused on my family. Um, And that's a really lucky thing. Yes. Time is, I think, of equal... um, Value in some some ways to money, you know, maybe even more. Yeah. All right. Your biggest splurge. What do you do to treat yourself? Massage every yeah. once in a while. I don't splurge very often. I really don't. I, I, I'm not saying this. I mean, it's such a like ridiculous American thing to say, but I should probably do it more because when I am a more balanced person, um, I've started to meditate such baby steps uh, when I can in the morning just to kind of settle myself a little bit. Um, that, that doesn't take any money. That's an app and, and, you know, a closed door. But on the rare occasion that I get a massage, um, it's heaven and I feel really different and it stays with me for, for a while. You're reminding me to sign up for a couple massages before my due date. 
lot to do. You have a lot to do. I have a lot on my to-do list. Yes. I'm going to email you when we're done. Cause <laughs> you're, first of all, you're getting ready for dancing to the stars. Right. And you need to massage. I mean, this is, this is a lot. Not to mention running my business. Yeah. It's a little busy. Yeah. Um, exactly. But that's the easy part. Yeah. Oh yeah. And then I'll have a baby. Another one. Yeah. Um, so happy for you. Thank you. Um, Oh, thank you so much for being on the show. I could talk to you. For, I lost track of time. And so I hope, I think that's a good thing. You know, I wanted to say one thing because I hear on your show this I am so money. And oh. I think that you can use it or not use it, but I really thought about it. And I think for me, what I really came to is the reason I am so money is I've had times where I've made a lot of money and times where I have not made a lot of money. And what I realized is I can be happy either way when I'm surrounded by people that I love. And that took me a very long time to really own, but it's true. And once you know you can be okay without, um, everything is easier. It's fantastic when you're with, but it's also really important to know that you can survive when you have less than. And in these kind of um, vulnerable times, economically and politically and what's going on in the world, just knowing that is, um, is, a, is a comforting thing. Thank you for sharing that with us. I didn't want to take up more of your time by asking you why are you so funny, oh. but that is, was such a, an honest and, and real answer. We so appreciate that and also just all the time you spent with us so far, Alana. Everybody should check out Little Known Facts. It's a fantastic podcast, and I'm jo- I'm just jealous that you get all these amazing celebrity guests. That I yeah. would I don't know if, if I was in a room with these people, I think I might just explode. I know, I know. I mean, Matthew. I mean, there have been you know when Matthew Broderick left, I was like. Sarah Jessica Parker is very lucky. I mean, I have an amazing, <laughs> but I do each time someone comes in, I was like, that that guy's amazing too. Brian Greenberg, John Hick, yeah, it's like endless. The list has been pretty fantastic, and I hope people will listen and enjoy it. And um, I look forward uh, to your fans being my fans, and and vice versa. That would be really amazing. Thanks so much to Alana for joining me on So Money. If you liked this episode. You'll love Alana's podcast, so be sure to subscribe to littleknownfactspodcast.com. Follow her on Twitter at Ilana Levine. And if you missed any of this episode, very simply go to somoneypodcast.com and download all the goodies, the audio, the transcript. It's all there for you. And if you have a question for me for the Friday episodes, click on Ask Farnoosh, leave a message, or type in your question, and we will queue it up for the Friday episodes. Thanks so much for tuning in, everyone, and I hope your day is so much.